Brother Johnson. I would like you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Leviticus again. And we're going to read this morning from the fourth chapter, but before we do, I would like to get a little bit more into yesterday's message on the feast of the trespass offering, on, on the offering of the trespass offering, so that uh, I can give you a few things that you fail to get the complete notes on. Now, I was asked to speak just a little slower. You might just well ask my son to stand a little shorter. <laughs> It's part of my nature. Now, if you listened to me 25 years ago when my, when my wife first listened to me, you never would have gotten a word, I'm afraid, but she slowed me down a little bit. I will do my best to talk a little slower, but if I see that I'm going to be a bit confused, I'll get back to my usual speed. <laughs> this morning we had a feast of fat things. I appreciate what Brother Spolster brought before us. He did say, however, that he had two names, one according to the covenant and one according to grace. And the name according to the covenant was Cornelius, and the, the name according to grace was Keith. I told him this morning I had the same difficulty, because according to the covenant, my name was Nicholas, and according to grace, my name is Clarence. Now, some of you people don't know what we're talking about, but that shows you how confused we were. <laughs> But we thank God for the right of dividing of the word of truth, and we've been managed to be straightened out just a little bit. It's so nice to be here, and I appreciate the part of the ministry that I have been given to me, and especially for these marvelous subjects, because you can't get any subject that compares with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament abounds with beautiful types concerning the completeness of that work. And it's because of the completeness of that work and our knowledge of it that we have peace and joy in believing. I said yesterday that I know one thing above everything, and that is I'm going to be in eternal glory with the Lord Jesus. And my statement is not based on fancy, it's based on fact. And the fact is the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died for not, the, uh, for not simply the sins that I know of, but the things that God knew all about me and that he knows about the human nature. Now, there are a few things I would like to give you to complete yesterday's uh, message. I said that there were eight major offerings around which the religious life of the people of Israel revolved, and I did not give all eight to you. The first one was the redemptive offering of Exodus chapter 12. The second was the offering of sanctification, which brought the people into a place of nearness and access into the presence of God, and that's given to us in the 24th chapter of the book of Exodus. And then you have Leviticus chapter 1, you have the burnt offering. Leviticus chapter 3, you have the peace offering. PC will do for peace if you're making notes. And then in chapter 4, you have the sin offering. And then chapter 5, you have the trespass offering. Then you get to the national sin offering of Leviticus chapter 16. 
So you notice so far that we have two sin offerings. And then you get to Numbers chapter 19, the burning, the offering and the burning of the red heifer in order to provide the ashes for the water of purification, which is also a sin offering. These eight offerings are the offerings around which the religious life or the spiritual life of the people of Israel revolved. They all typify some aspect of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It takes all eight of these in order to show us what was necessary in order that man might not only be redeemed but brought unto God and given the blessings of redemption and given the uh, place that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenlies for all eternity. Then I fail to tell you that in Romans chapter 5, and so we turn to that please if you want to keep your finger in the book of Leviticus, but in Romans chapter 5 we have something that corresponds very favorably with the one-fifth to be added to the principle thereof. You remember that statement? And we thank God that our Lord Jesus Christ not only died in order to give us eternal life, but in order to add much more to that so that we are going to be with the Lord Jesus for all eternity and share in his glory and we are going to get infinitely more than what Adam lost for the human race when he fell into, this, into sin in the Garden of Eden. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, for instance, it says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And in the much more I see the one-fifth added to the principle thereof. Then if you go to verse 15, you will see it says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And again I see the one-fifth added to the principle thereof. And then in verse 17 it says, For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of the righteousness and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And the last one in verse 20, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Rather, verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound or superabound. I just throw that out to you in order to add to what you had yesterday. When you go to the book of Leviticus in the portion that we had yesterday, in chapter 5, you will find in verse 15, and I would like to elaborate a little bit upon this because I think we need practical teaching as well as doctrinal. It's so nice to see so many young people, but I would like to see these young people's lives put in the right direction. And I think because of the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and the things that he accomplished on that cross, we should get the mind of God concerning sin. We should not toy around with sin. We should be very definite as far as the objectives that we have in life. 
And even though we may not be here for another ten years because we expect the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe in the imminent return of our Lord Jesus, I believe that in those ten years it would profit you to see that your direction is quite correct and proper according to the Word of God. You must remember that there are two lifestyles in the world, that which governs and controls the world and that which governs and controls the believer that's in the world. And while we are living in a day of permissive society, we must remember that a good deal of this permissiveness is rubbing off on the professing church. And we find that this should not be with those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We find a lot of compromises being made in order to get along with the world. And we find that there is even compromise in the area of sin and the practice of sin. But those of us who are born of God do not practice sin. We should have another attitude towards sin entirely. We should not permit it in our lives. And I trust that when a thought or a thing comes to your mind, some course of action, and that thing or that course of action is sinful, and you know it before you commit it, I trust that you will so discipline your life that it will not be committed, that you will obey the promptings of the Spirit of God, and then you will look in the face of the cross and see what it meant to the person of our Lord Jesus when he suffered and bled and died for that contemplated act of yours, which is sinful in the sight of God. We don't believe in doing our own thing as believers. And I think the world believes in that sort of thing. That's their maxim. We want to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. And I believe that the Word of God is full of that which is pleasing to Him, and that's the only source of information that we can get concerning what is pleasing for members of the body of Christ. In verse 15 of Leviticus chapter 5, it says, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the things of the Lord. And then in chapter 6, and verse 2, if a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord, and in this case we find it is not through ignorance, but he lies unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, and so on. So we find there is sin Godward and there is sin manward. The sin that is Godward is done inadvertently. The individual is not considered to have contemplated it and step into it after he has decided it is a sinful actor contrary to the commandments of the Lord. It is, is a sin that he has not given any consideration to, and we find that it is committed inadvertently. But I want to take those few words in the holy things of the Lord. Some of us really believe that we are dedicated unto the Lord, and I want to look at that dedication just for a moment as one of the many holy things of the, uh, the holy things of the Lord that we can think about. But many of us in our dedication are not wholehearted in our dedication, and we try to reserve a portion of our heart and of our life for the world, lest we look too peculiar to the people of the world. I want to ask you, are you willing to look in your heart this morning and if you really believe that you are dedicated and have dedicated your life unto the Lord, is, is it a wholehearted dedication? 
Does it include every area of your life, of your thoughts, and of your plans and purposes? You see, that's part of the holy things of the Lord. And not only there, but may we say that in many cases, we limit our obedience to the word of God. Now, when we think of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, some of us seek to do this only in a measure. And God wants wholehearted obedience to that particular verse. Now, God knows exactly where there is a difference between the wholehearted obedience and the half-hearted obedience. He wants this body of ours. It's the only way through which he can express himself in a scene where he himself is absent and in a scene where he can only be present through us so that our body is his body. Our tongue is his tongue. And we find that these members of our bodies are his members. And then we think of a scripture like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If he therefore, if he then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Doesn't mean anything to you. Is there wholehearted or only half-hearted obedience to this? I believe that's the way in which we can see this particular passage of Scripture. If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord. And yet the Lord has anticipated all of this half-heartedness. He anticipated it when he died on the cross. He did not only anticipate adultery and fornication and theft and all these other things that seem to be tangible aspects of sin, but he has anticipated this half-hearted thing that you and I can't see and that we don't seem to detect in our lives. And the Lord Jesus Christ died for that as well as he died for all other types of sin. It's so nice to see that every type of sin that you can ever think about that comes within the range of your reason this, this morning has all been considered by God the Father as they laid them upon God the Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ was made sin for that sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, if positionally we have been made the righteousness of God in him, I expect that in a conditional way we will be the righteousness of God in him, and so works and the things and deeds of righteousness will issue from this life of ours. In another thing, in chapter 6 and in verse 2, we find the idea of defrauding one's neighbor. And may we spiritualize just a little bit there too because I am not talking about lying to each other or swearing falsely. In all of these little acts we find that the neighbor has been defrauded. Do you and I not defraud our neighbor when we withhold the gospel of grace from them? Perhaps we don't lie to each other. Perhaps we don't swear falsely that the idea here is of defrauding another individual. And we defraud, defraud them in the most important area when we withhold the gospel of grace from them. 
So when opportunity knocks at your door, step in. Open the door and speak to those who are out of Christ. And that's the reason why that it takes the uh, wisdom and the uh, learning and the knowledge of the priest to come to the conclusion as to what damage has been done. And it takes the priest himself to, uh, and the energy of, this, of the priest, and not of the in individual offender, to conclude the damage that's been done in the things of the Lord and in the defrauding of one another. We don't know just how much damage we have done or how seriously we have hurt someone in keeping the gospel from them, do we? We never know what a person might become if they were saved under our message. And yet we find that we are not quick to talk to others about the Lord, and we ought to. I trust that each one of us will search our hearts this morning and come to the conclusion as to whether we have these particular trespasses in our life and whether there ought to be some consideration given to it. Now let us go back, please, to the book of Leviticus chapter 14. This is a very lengthy portion concerning the sin offering, and I don't intend to read it all. It goes right through the 12th verse of the 5th chapter. We can't take it verse by verse, but we can see it in essence before we are through, I am quite sure. I would like to read from chapter 4 and verse 1 through the first 12 verses. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I'll wait till I hear the rustling of the leaves stop. I like to hear the rustling of the leaves. It sounds good. You all have your place? Oh, chapter 4, verse 1, I'm sorry. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1. Did I give it wrongly a while ago? I'm sorry. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance, or inadvertently against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he hath sinned a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it into the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with, with the kidneys, it shall he take away. 
as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering. And the skin of the bullock and all the flesh, with his head and with his legs and with his, and his inward and his dung, even the whole bullock shall be carried forth, shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. We can't take up every aspect of this particular offering. There are depths that I am not able to fathom and there are heights that I'm not able to ascend as far as these marvelous teachings are concerned. But I do believe there are men here that, my, that are capable of doing a little bit more justice to these deep things than I am. But here I want to give you enough to whet your appetite to see that God has something here for us. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. All of our learning is not to be confined within 14 epistles in the book of, uh, in the New Testament scriptures. We need all of the word of God, and all can be rightly divided, and I thank God for it. We don't put ourselves under the law when we read in the book of Leviticus, or we don't put ourselves under the law when we read the book of Deuteronomy. That's not the lesson to be gained there at all. But there are lovely comparisons, and we see principles at work, divine principles, that are necessary for us to know because they are the same divine principles that operate in the new. They all issue from one God and his attributes are unchangeable. God is just as holy today as he was back in the Old Testament. And the standards that he has made back in the Old Testament are made because of his holiness. And they conform with the standards that are made in the New Testament scripture. Of course there is that a uh, portion of scripture, especially to the members of the body of Christ in the New Testament. But then again, we need all of the scriptures. I want you to notice now, it says, if a, sin, if a soul sin inadvertently. I want to give you another scripture beside the one I gave you yesterday. In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, I want you to see that God cannot go on with a man who sins presumptuously. There is no atonement provided for the man who sins presumptuously. What he actually does is that he cuts himself off from the long life that is promised him by God who gave the land to the people of Israel. It says in Numbers chapter 15 and verses 30 and 31, but the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord. This is why it's so serious for us today not to sin when we know that the thing contemplated is sinful before God. When the Holy Spirit of God has brought to our attention that the contemplated act is sinful, don't carry it out. Oh, I know you can't lose your salvation. That's not what this is all about. They simply sacrificed the privilege, or they forfeited the privilege of living long on the earth which the Lord their God gave them. It says, because he hath despised the word of the Lord. And that's exactly what we do when we seek to carry out or practice presumptuous sin. We know what the Word says, but now we're not going to allow the Word of God to regulate our lives. And therefore we do what the Bible says you are not to do. 
because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment, that those shall utterly be cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. No, I don't read in that verse of Scripture where the man lost his salvation, but he's cut off. And there's many a child of God that's cut off from the fellowship that's in the Lord simply because of, of sin that's being practiced in their lives. Going back to Leviticus chapter 4, we notice that there are categories of individuals that are considered in this portion of Scripture about the sin offering. I want you to look at the persons involved in these sins and then in the prescribed sacrifices for the persons involved. You have in verse 3, and maybe you would like to underline this in your Bible, that's what I do. In verse 3 it says, the priest. And in verse 4 it says, they shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, or verse 4, the first part, and he shall bring the bullock. Now for the sin of the priest, there is the offering of the bullock. When we go to verse 13, it says, If the whole congregation of Israel sinned through ignorance. And in that same verse, it tells us that they are to bring a bullock. Verse 14, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock. So we got the same value of a sacrifice for the priest and for the whole congregation. In verse 22, it says, when a ruler hath sinned. In verse 23, it says, or if his sin wherein he hath sinned come to his knowledge, he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. Now we see that the offering depreciates in value because there is a man involved that does not have the same station in life as the priest. And then a little farther on we have in verse 27, and if any one of the common people sin through ignorance. Always notice that it's through ignorance. And the offering is not offered until it comes to the man's knowledge. If you have knowledge, again I say, if you have knowledge of the sin before it's committed, you sin presumptuously, uh, presumptuously for which there is no uh, uh, sin offering, for which there is no atonement. Now all of these sacrifices find their glorious climax in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank God for that. But in verse 28 we find that the sin offering for the ruler is this. Or if his sin which he has sinned come to his knowledge, then he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish. And in verse 32, and if he bring a lamb for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without blemish. So it can either be a female a kid of the goats or a female lamb. But again, it's not quite as much as the male kid of the goats that the ruler is expected to offer. When you get into chapter 5 and verse 7, you will see that a consideration is made now for poverty. And if he be not able to bring a lamb, and I love that expression because God takes into consideration either our poverty or the wealth of our spiritual apprehension of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
If he be not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring for his trespass, which he hath committed two turtle doves. This is not a trespass offering. This is still the sin offering, up and including verse 13. Now it is two turtle doves. So far we have six sacrifices. And this is the only offering, the sin offering, that has seven particular types of sacrifices. When you go on just a little farther, you will notice in verse 11, that if he be not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he that sins shall bring for his offering the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil upon it, neither shall he put any frankincense thereon, for it is a sin offering. Now, have you noticed you have a bullock? You have a male kid of the goats. You have a female kid of the goats. You have a female lamb. You have two turtle doves. And then you have one-tenth part of an ephah of fine flour. All of these give us a little picture of the varied thoughts that we have concerning the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is too bad that we are not in a spiritual condition to be all, to, for all of us to see the bullock side of the sin offering. Those who are recently saved by the grace of God, we see that they only see themselves or see the person of Christ and his death on the cross in the sense in which it answers to the ephah of fine flour. These various offerings and these various individuals are typical of teaching in the Word. All four types of sinful people, of sinners, the priests, the whole congregation, the ruler, and the common people, these all speak of various stages of spiritual life and responsibility among believers. In other words, some people stand very tall before God as far as responsibility is concerned, and as far as apprehension of the death of Christ on the cross is concerned. They have been saved for many years. They have grown in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is incumbent upon every believer in Christ to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord And he is expected more, it is expected more from him. And we find that he occupies the second rung. And on the third rung up, we find the whole congregation. And on the fourth rung, we find the priest. How tall do we stand before the Lord? How tall do we want to stand before him? Just how much of Christ do we want to know? You can know all you want to about him. You'll never know him to completion until you are in the glory. We don't have the minds for that. I wish I had a greater knowledge of the person of our Lord Jesus. I wish I had a greater knowledge of these marvelous offerings back here that tells us of the completeness of the work of Christ. That tells us that there are sins that you and I know nothing about, but God apprehended them long before time ever began. And he saw them as existing, as coming in the wake of Adam's sin. And he allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to be made sin for them so that there would never be anything standing before the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a holy God. 
Yesterday I said there is a subject that's taught to us in these two offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering. We find two subjects, and that is sin and holiness. The sin is ours. The holiness is God's. Now there are people who can't bear the thought of sin or of holiness. They make excuse for their sin. They don't like to entertain thoughts about God, and I'm talking about the unregenerate. What unregenerate person likes to think about God's holiness? It's enough to make them to fear and quake when they think about it. But they have a way of pacifying their conscience so that while they don't want to entertain thoughts of his holiness, they talk about how God is a God of love and he's so good to everybody. And they think that they are really glorifying the attributes of God. And they are going to find a shelter behind God as a God of love and a God of mercy and a compassionate God. But may I say that those can only be exercised according to his holiness. In the book of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 92, it says that the people of God rejoice at the thought of God's holiness. You and I who are saved are not afraid of God's holiness, are we, to think about it? Because, you see, your sin and mine was taken care of in the death of Christ on the cross, not according to our thoughts of that sin, not according to our consciences, but according to his holiness. That's the reason why you and I have eternal security, if I may use those words. That's why the Bible says there is therefore now no judgment to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's why it tells us that we have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's why it tells us that our citizenship is not, in heaven, not on earth, but it's in the heavens with Christ. And we are looking for that moment, and we trust it will be very soon when we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air to be with him for all eternity. Now, I would suggest that if you feel as though you measure up to one of the common people, that you and I desire to raise our standard and our desire to know more about the Lord Jesus and to be able to apprehend his death on Calvary just a, a, a bit more and uh, get up to the status, shall we say, of a ruler. But may I say there's more responsibility connected with growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The responsibility grows as we grow in grace. And more is going to be expected of us. I believe that's taught to us by the Gospel of Luke. Let's look at chapter 12 and verse 48. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12 and verse 48. Luke chapter 12 and verse 48 reads, But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Now notice the last part. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now I believe this is an interdispensational truth. 
I think this could be applied to any particular dispensation. God has given us much, hasn't he? We shouldn't be satisfied to have just salvation, plus the mediocre blessing that might come out of that redemption. We want all there is to be enjoyed. And yet the more he gives us, the more responsibility there is, and more is expected of us. So these four types of people are four types of sinful people, we might say, and they are all saints. We find that they typify various stages of spiritual life. May we ask ourselves the question, just in what stage would I find myself to be in this morning? How long have you been saved? I would hate to tell you how long I am saved because I'm not proud of my progress. I am not proud of my growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is infinitely more that could have been taught and could have been learned. But again, there have been, shall we say, partial obediences. There have been areas in our lives and in our hearts that were kept for self and not entirely for the Lord. And in those areas, there are no spiritual developments, of course. Then we find, of course, that in each one of these cases, there is a difference in the sacrifice that are, that's to be brought. The whole congregation brings the same sacrifice that the priest does. One man is equal, as far as the priesthood is concerned, to all of the congregation, and they are all to bring the bullock. Now, the bullock and the male kid of the goats and all of these animals, the turtle doves and the female and so on, they all speak of the Lord Jesus. And we would hardly expect that a female would speak of the Lord Jesus or that a tenth part of an ephah fine flower would work as an atoning sacrifice unto the Lord, but it does. You remember what it says in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, it says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Atonement can only be made by blood, but there is a question, of course, in chapter 5, how is it then that the very poorest of the poor would be able to have this particular concession made for them, so that all he would have to bring is the one-tenth part of an ephah fine flour. Well, first of all, he is not bypassing the blood, because he is under the blood, we might say, of redemption that was shed in Exodus chapter 12, and of consecration that was shed in Exodus chapter 24. He is involved in that. He is sheltered under it. If he was not part of that redeemed nation, then an ephah of fine flour would be an insult to the Lord. And then there would be the yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16, when any particular member who was so poor, so impoverished, that he would not be able to bring a, a bloody sacrifice, that he would be taken care of in the yearly sacrifice, 
because then blood would be shed, and without the shedding of blood there was no remission and there would be no atonement. So I think the Word of God is a marvelous book because it makes no mistakes. You get the idea that there's something wrong perhaps in a chapter like this where some concession would be made to such an extent that a person would be so poor that he could not afford a bloody sacrifice, not even two pigeons. Well, you've got to be pretty poor for that, don't you? Now, a man's poverty of purse back here speaks of our poverty of spiritual things. This was poverty of purse. They didn't have it. They couldn't provide it. But there was always enough meal in the house with which to offer unto the Lord that which is required for such a poor person. I believe it might answer to a person who's just saved by the grace of God. What did I say about the meal offering yesterday? We're not taking it up, but we drop a word once in a while. The meal offering speaks to the moral perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a person is saved by the grace of God, and he's only saved a day or two or a week or two, that person doesn't know much about the Lord Jesus. In fact, he doesn't know very much about the cross and so on. But in this case, it suggests that he knows at least that here is a man in whom he has placed his trust, in whom there is no sin. A man that stands out among men as being entirely different from all other men. And it's good when a person comes to that conclusion because the unconverted have not come to that conclusion. That there is no sinful nature in the Lord Jesus. And so I would suggest that the smallest of offerings would suggest poverty of soul. And that could be due to two reasons. One is that the individual hasn't been saved long enough to know very much concerning the Lord. So it does find an answer in the real babe in Christ. The real infant in the Lord Jesus. Always says, I thank God that Christ was preached to me. He's the only man who has ever lived who has never sinned, and therefore he can answer for my sin. And I believe that is suggested there. Then when you get to the next step up and you get to the turtle doves, you've got a person whose estimation of the death of Christ rises just a little higher. He's not only a person in whom there is no nature of sin, who never did sin, but now you've got a person that comes from heaven. This man who has never done any sin, he has come from the glory. He has come down into this world, been born of a virgin, in order that he might take upon himself a human form, so that with that human form he might take my place on the cross. And perhaps there are some of us who have this small estimation of the Lord Jesus, and I would not say it's small, as far as your spiritual growth and development is concerned, for if you are a babe in Christ, I expect that you only see him as a pair of turtle doves, as the man who knew no sin yet came down from heaven's glory in order to take your place on the cross. But if you are saved for ten years and your estimation of the Lord Jesus Christ is only in the form of two turtle doves, I would say you better get out of it and start to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. By that time, we ought to have a greater apprehension of our Lord Jesus. And where do we get these greater apprehensions? We get it from the Word of God.
And the Word of God is so constructed and so construed that you and I can't read very far in it without having the glories of the personal work, personal work of our Lord Jesus brought to our attention. And we are to feed on those things. We'll have more talk about feeding in, other, in another service. And then you get to the female kid. You know, that doesn't mean that there's any deficiency in the Lord Jesus. We all like to think of him as being the male. Because when it comes to the larger sacrifices, it's always a male. You don't get a female out of the herd, you get the bullock. But here you get a female kid or a female lamb. And if there is any lack, it is not a lack in the person of Christ or in what he has done for us on the cross. The lack is in our apprehension of Christ. Just a bit more feeble apprehension than those who see in the Lord Jesus Christ the male of the kid of the goats or the male of the sheep. Do you follow it? We find beautiful pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ given to us in many ways. But in every case we find that there is a proper apprehension according to the length of time that we've been saved and there is an improper apprehension on the same basis. If I have been saved for 40 years, I should not be down there offering unto the Lord in my worship and adoration unto him something that might be equal to a tenth of an heap of fine flour. More of what he has done and of who he is and what he has accomplished and how he has thoroughly satisfied the holiness of God when he was made sin for us on the cross. So in chapter 4 and 5 we have these the sin offerings before us. Now I want to show you in verses 6 and 7 some important things as to where the blood was to be applied. Because when we look at the places, the three places where the blood was to be applied, we see the damage that's been done and how that's been rectified by the application of that blood. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. There are three places where the blood is applied because of the threefold damage that sin incurs when it is practiced, even though inadvertently. If you have a little picture in your mind about the tabernacle, you will see a rectangular structure, and we see a courtyard, and in the courtyard we have the altar of burnt offering and the brazen laver. And then in, in the first compartment called the holy place, we have on the left side, we have the candlestick, the golden candlestick. On the right side, you would have the table of showbread, and straight ahead, you would have the altar, the golden altar of incense. And then if you were able to part the veil, which was only done once a year in the Day of Atonement by the high priest, 
There you would see the mercy seat. But now if this is to be done day after day, and these were compulsory offerings, so that 365 days of the year would be necessary as people would recognize the sin that they had done, and they would bring these various prescribed offerings to the tabernacle in order for the priest to do his work after the animal was killed. For always remember, the animal is always killed by the offerer. Some people believe that the animal was killed by the priest. And that's why there is confusion over the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, because they believe that when he offered himself on the cross, it was the same as sacrificing himself as a priest on the cross. Now, when Christ was on earth, he was not a priest. And if he were now on earth, he would not be a priest. Because priesthood is after the order of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, and our Lord Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah. He could not be a priest. He could not, even though he were the Son of God, he could never part the veil in those 33 and a half years of human existence on this earth. He could never part the veil because he was not a priest. Imagine the distinction of entering into the very presence of God by parting the veil was not his. If he were on earth, he could not be a priest. Now we find that the priest parted the veil once every year only. But since the sons of Aaron were not high priests, they could not go into the presence of God. And when the daily sacrifice was made, and when these daily offerings were offered, then the priest went as far as he possibly could. And according to the first part of verse 6, it was to sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. Now, he could not part the veil, but the nearest that he could get to the presence of the Lord would be before the veil, and that's where he sprinkled the blood. Now, what does beyond the veil represent? It represents the presence of God among his people. God says there, I will meet with thee and commune with thee above the mercy seat. God's dwelling place was not in the first compartment, the holy place. It was in the second compartment, the holy of holies. And into the Holy of Holies went the great high priest, or the high priest, once every year. And so we find that that represents the presence of God among his people and the relationship that exists between God and the saints. When we sin, we forfeit that, that uh, when those people sin back there, they forfeited, we might say, Typically, the presence of God and the fellowship that they ought to enjoy and the presence of God in their midst. And so this blood was sprinkled upon, uh, before the veil in order to secure for the people of God the continued relationship and the continued presence of God among them. Now all of this is done automatically by Christ's death on the cross for us. Oh, I know that there is a nearness that is ours positionally. We have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavens. And then we find that in our conditional everyday living, 
there can be a nearness to be enjoyed. And we sacrifice that nearness and that fellowship by sin that when it comes to our knowledge, we refuse to do what we ought to be doing about it. And I believe that is confessing and forsaking that sin. Now there is a question as to whether the believer today confesses his sin. I read in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I go back to Proverbs chapter 28 and 13, and of course it's not Paul's epistles, but there it tells us that if we cover our sins, we are not uh, going to prosper. But those who confess and forsake their sins will continue to enjoy the presence of God. We find in the book of Hosea, in the last chapter I believe it is, that we are to come, or the people of Israel are to come and with words to the Lord and confess their sin. Now I don't think it's out of place when children in my family do something that they know have grieved their parents when they come and say, Dad, I'm sorry. Or mother, this is what I've done. You told, told me to do thus and so, and I didn't do it. I acted in self-will. I refused to be under your command. It wasn't right. Now, we are not going to become legalistic as far as our children are concerned. We love them. We spoil them by not expecting too much from them all the time. But what's wrong about the fact that when I realize that there has been sin practiced, unknowingly, but it comes to my mind, and I suddenly realize that I've acted contrary to all the truth of the cross of Calvary, and that that particular sin, though it doesn't seem to be so great at the time, was sufficient for the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer and bleed and to die for it on the cross. I believe that it's not out of place to say, Lord, I've done this. With your help, it will not be done again. He that confesseth and forsaketh, I don't believe in just rattling it off before the Lord and confessing it without any desire to forsake it. I think the two go together. And I believe that's what we have here. I believe you will notice that in chapter 5. It says in verse 5, And it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing. Of course, we're not back there in those days, but it seems to me so right, so natural. I may be wrong. Maybe I stand correction on this. But this is the way I've looked at it all of my life. And I have not been convinced to the contrary as yet. Then we notice that the blood is sprinkled upon the horns of the altar. Do you know that the very moment sin comes into our lives, we disturb the fellowship to the point where our worship has been disrupted. How can the heart be engaged with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ when there are unanswered questions regarding sin? We'll see more about worship in the first chapter of the book of uh, Leviticus. 
Thursday, the Lord willing. Worship is the outflow of the heart that is occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know no other better definition than that. Worship is the natural outflow of the heart that's occupied with the person of the Lord Jesus. It is impossible for the heart to be occupied with both the Lord Jesus and unconfessed sin, or sin allowed to remain in our lives without any desire to take care of it. And therefore we find that it was uh, sprinkled upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense and that was to secure the worship of the assembly that was forfeited because of the sin. And then thirdly, we notice that it is poured at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard. And that's the place of individual approach. That has to do with the individual conscience. And it's a terrible thing for believers to have sin on the conscience. Oh, I know in relation to eternity, we don't have sin on the conscience. We know that Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. But as far as our fellowship and our relationship with the Lord Jesus, and that continued fellowship, I believe it is necessary to notice that sin can disrupt that fellowship. And I trust we're going to have a proper outlook on our Christian lives so that if we sin we know we have an advocate with the Father coming from the same book 1 John chapter 2 in which you read in 1 John chapter 1 if we sin if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and so as you go through this chapter, we've had a little bit of everything in that chapter, considering all of those who could be guilty of sin and the type of sacrifices that were to be brought. And our Lord Jesus Christ has been the full answer to all of this sin. And I trust that we have seen just a little <clears throat> bit about the need of spiritual growth and development so that our apprehension of the Lord Jesus Christ will increase and abound. So that if we are only capable now of seeing the Lord Jesus as a tenth of a meal offering or a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, we will soon see him to be a little bit more than that, a pair of turtle doves. Or perhaps a little higher than that even, a female of the kid of the goats or of the lambs. Or perhaps a little higher than that even, a male lamb, and right on up to a bullock. We trust that our desire this morning will be to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ and to appreciate the fullness of his sacrifice on the cross. And the fact that there is nothing within the area of our thinking that we could call sin in any way, shape, or form, but what it has been anticipated by a holy God. And Christ has answered for it again according to the holiness of God and not according to our conscience or according to our estimation of it. It's according to his. So may we rest simply where God rests. He rests in the finished work of Christ. And that's where we are to rest. And may it be ours to go on to know the Lord 
and to enjoy these things that God has provided for us in his word and to go on from glory to glory. May the Lord bless his word to us. Shall we pray? Father, we are so grateful to thee for thy goodness to us today. We thank thee for this lovely chapter and we just pray that thou wilt use it to thy glory. Help us to be very conscious of sin in our lives. Keep us, our Father, from sinning presumptuously, of taking things in our own hands, of going contrary to thy will. And we just trust that if something is brought to our mind concerning sin in our life this morning, we will face it. And we're so glad that we're able to face it in the light of a full cross. For we ask it in the name and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.